powered by the Seneca Network. We are bi-weekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. We are back this week with Rebecca Liao, Executive Vice President at SKUChain, a blockchain platform that provides an end-to-end solution for the supply chain. And on top of that, she has a busy professional life with being a writer and China analyst. We get technical examining the applications of blockchain and their potential, as well as get some valuable advice on reaching beyond your day job. Let's take a listen here. Hi, Rebecca. I wanted to first welcome you on Ta for Ta today. We're really excited to have you on the show and get diving into some of your background, as well as a lot of stories from your professional growth. Absolutely. Juliana, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast and of the Seneca series in general. So I'm very happy to be here. Thanks so much. Yes, of course. And to listeners, Rebecca is currently the executive vice president at SKU Chain, and she's also had a whole host of experiences prior to that, working as a head of Asia in business development, even a foray and still a foray into journalism and writing many different articles. So I think there's a lot of different topics that we can cover today. But I think that you could probably do a better job of this. Could you just tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you're at today? Sure. So, you know, it's it's interesting because I think of myself as a planner, and I think most people who know me well think of me as a planner as well. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that everything you just talked about, and frankly, everything in my career has been the result of something completely unforeseen. Well, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer, and I knew that I wanted to practice corporate law because I loved deal making, I loved negotiation. And so, right out of law school, I decided to focus on mergers and acquisitions, financings, corporate securities, things that are kind of boring. Um, but I did that for about seven years. and always felt that I wanted to transition over to the business side of things. So in Silicon Valley, the best way to contribute uh, as much as possible in a business setting is to join a startup. And so I was at Fenwick at the time, which is a law firm out here, and I literally just saw on Twitter an article about the startup called Globality, and it was a TechCrunch article, and it talked about uh, Globality's ambitions. And that it was going to completely revolutionize global trade, and that was catnip for me.、Uh, so I reached out to their CEO and just introduced myself and said I would really love to learn more.、Um, but he immediately took that as indicating interest in a job.、Um, so he handed me off to、um, one of his executives. And a couple weeks later, I had an offer to join them on the business side. So that was how I got into that, basically off of a TechCrunch article. And what Globality does, it's it's an AI company that focuses on procurement of international services. And so I was there for about a year and a half, doing business development, heading up their Asia operations. And it was around that time that、uh, I was also quite busy. 
on the Clinton presidential campaign and talking to a lot of trade colleagues, um, coming up with policy papers and positions on Asia trade and economic policy. And I was hearing a lot about blockchain. And it's unusual for trade professionals to be really excited about a particular cutting-edge innovation. Uh, Trade is not thought of as one of those areas that is really open um, to bleeding-edge technology. And so I became very interested in blockchain. And the more I studied, the more apparent it became that it was really going to revolutionize this area. So I literally Googled international trade and blockchain, and SKUchain was the first result. And much like globality, I didn't really know anybody at SKUchain. It was a very small team at the time. And I just reached out to the CEO and um, said I'd, I'd love to talk. And again, a couple weeks later, I had a job. So that's um, been almost two years since that conversation. And here we are. That's really an amazing summarized version of how you got to where you are today. And I think what I really want to do is backtrack all the way to the beginning and talk about some of these tension points and some of these steps that you took and each of these steps along your career to get you to where you are today. So I kind of want to go back to this first job that you had at Fenwick in international law and what about the traditional forms of law in an international sense were you initially attracted to and do you think some of that appeal has remained the same for you throughout your career? Absolutely. So the very first law firm I worked for was Skadden Arps. Uh, It's a big M&A shop out of New York, um, but I worked in the Silicon Valley office. And uh, what attracted me to doing uh, transactions, these deals on um, an international stage, was the different business cultures, the different value propositions, um, the different opportunities for trade that were present in every deal. And every deal is different. You have a different set of parties who have their unique relationships with their unique positive points and unique challenges. And as a lawyer, uh, your responsibility is to quarterback all of that. Uh, So this is something that you don't see on Law & Order or any of the other legal drama shows uh, because those focus on litigation and criminal law for the most part. But what I learned uh, is that there is this whole other practice for lawyers that focuses more on deal execution, structuring, negotiation, Mm -hmm. and really managing a process by which companies grow and grow value for their shareholders and their employees. And so we see that there is this interest in moving onto a next step, doing something potentially with a startup. But did you also feel like you had phased out of your time in international law? Did you feel that you wanted to expand your horizon or that you didn't see yourself on the trajectory of being at a law firm? What what on the other end of that decision making was going through your mind? So I, for better or for worse, have always had this desire to bring all of myself to my job and to my career. And I saw that there was a lot of pressure coming out of school to drop a lot of the interests that you had while you were in school. So for example, I don't think many people 
go to college to become investment bankers, for instance. Mm. Um, that's certainly not what they write really? about in their personal <laughs> statements, right? <laughs> um, and I'm sure not a lot of law students think I just really, really want to practice in a law firm and make partner and you know settle there for the rest of my life. Some people certainly do, especially if they have family members who were lawyers and that was their first exposure to legal practice. But I think for most people, the aspiration is to do something really meaningful to themselves and really meaningful to the world. And you can certainly do that in a law firm setting. But as you can tell from the amount of time I spent writing uh, while I was a lawyer and pursuing other activities, that there were other things I was passionate about and other things that I felt I could contribute in. And the fact of the matter is, as a lawyer, A, you are short on time. It is a very busy job. But B, in order to be a good lawyer and I think an ethical lawyer, a lot of your time, your intellectual energy, and your attention, period, have to be devoted to your clients and to your practice. And so I knew that a lot of these other angles that I was interested in, whether it be in public policy and journalism and, of course, in business, all of those would have to fall by the wayside. And at the seven-year mark, I thought to myself, you know what, I, I think that now is a good time to make the jump. What would you say was most difficult about trying to incorporate these other angles of your life as you moved out of the law sphere? Because it probably wasn't easy even trying to carve out those spaces in the other industries and the other roles that you worked in over the course of your career so far? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I would say that the fact that I am interested in many things, that I do have my hands in many endeavors, has been an asset. I think people are uh, generally curious about the fact that I do other things. Um, but it's also been something to explain oftentimes, uh, whether it be in terms of you know, are you really happy uh, in your job or in your main profession? Why is it that we should publish your piece if there are so many full-time journalists and writers waiting to mm. publish their works as well? Um, so there's definitely been some explaining to do. Um, but I think for the most part, the fact that I've been able to do many different things at once has given me a broader perspective into each individual thing that I've pursued. And ultimately, that's been helpful in each of those individual pursuits. Um, so whether it's because I just couldn't imagine doing it any other way or because it's actually been helpful, I have continued to pursue several things at once. And from a tactical perspective, maybe to younger professionals at the beginning stages of their career, would you have any more uh, tactical advice for them about how to think about navigating that? I didn't even think that maybe a news outlet would even question if it's a good piece of writing, why you would want to publish something or why they should be publishing something. So that was a complete surprise to me. Yeah. So definitely uh, news outlets are looking for expertise, but as in every profession, uh, relationships matter a great deal. And so as 
you as a news professional, as you're building out your relationships with other writers or journalists in this space, uh, you definitely, you know, think of the names that you see over and over again, and the people whom you consider to be colleagues. But in terms of would I have any tactical advice for people who are looking to break into new fields or who are looking to sort of maintain different pursuits at the same time, I would say, There isn't any sort of cookie cutter advice that I can offer, but the main thing to keep in mind is it is a privilege at the end of the day to be able to pursue all these different things or to be able to Mm. think about making a career change. I absolutely uh, appreciate and don't take for granted that I am in a very fortuitous situation to even think about, you know, potentially leaving a lucrative legal job to go to a startup or leaving a few hours at the end of the day to write because I am able to pitch a news outlet or I have built up knowledge about China and business and I'm able to write about it. There are many, many people in a situation where they're tethered to a job, not because they're not passionate about other things, but because of practical considerations. And so when you are in a position to potentially change your career or expand your career, I think having that awareness that there are other considerations and other factors that affect how people think of you and how you should go about pursuing your endeavors based on that perception. Those are all things that you should keep in mind. So that's a very long way of saying uh, definitely go for it, but be aware at any given point in time sort of what the trade-offs are, what the sacrifices are potentially, and um, absent that, uh, (laughs) definitely go ahead and pursue it. Yeah, I think that's fair and practical. It also seems that there's a level of intentionality that you brought to being able to pursue those angles as you progress through your career. So I think I think that's really interesting. And I just also wanted to talk a little bit more on the flip side about the type of work that you were doing at Globality. And you touch sourcing now, I think, at your role at SkewChain, but it is, I think, from a really revolutionary angle. I want to understand how some of the work that you did at Globality and how you helped evolve sourcing, how that work maybe translated into the work that you're doing today. Sure, absolutely. Now, um, one would think that I'm basically working Um, on two sides of the same coin. So Globality was all about the international trade in services, and SkewChain is all about the international trade in goods. But That's basically what I gleaned from what I understood. So definitely (laughs) prove me wrong here. Yeah. So what Globality taught me was how to go about pursuing international business when you have nothing to start with. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say we literally had nothing. We were well-funded. We had an amazing executive team with a lot of experience and connections. Uh, So we had a lot of assets that other early-stage startups don't necessarily enjoy. But having said that, 
it taught me to pursue opportunities uh, for growing a business and to also be able to edit out opportunities. Um, your temptation when you are young as a company and you know every uh, opportunity looks like a nail because you're a hammer is uh, something to keep in mind, to be aware of, and to inform your job as you go ahead and, and try to pursue these different business development opportunities. But it also taught me to go ahead and pursue new markets. Uh, so Asia has always been a big passion of mine. I knew that what globality was offering would be really important for Asian countries that are just starting to export international services and increasingly are becoming consumers of international services. And I knew that globality would be a big opportunity for them. Uh, now, growing a market uh, in which you happen to have a lot of experience, but maybe other people in the company do not, is definitely an exercise in consensus building and collaboration. And that was also a great lesson to take forward. When I arrived at SKU Chain, I could apply some of the, uh, let's call it more concrete or substantive knowledge that I acquired at Globality in terms of the subject matter. So we definitely learned a great deal about the ins and outs of international trade. I mean, you learn some of these regulations and some of the practices from just practicing international law and international uh, transactions. However, actually having to run a business or run aspects of a business that specialize in this area is quite different, uh, and you do get a deeper dive into it. Coming to SKU Chain, I was able to apply some of that knowledge, but I think what I started at Globality and what has culminated here at SKU Chain is really mm. moving out of that structured environment at a law firm and frankly in public policy and government service as well. Uh, so it's a very different environment to be in when you are at a workplace that has been around for a long time, that has a legacy and infrastructure that is decades old. Uh, you have resources and a large team and all of that, which is wonderful support. And it's also structure that you can rely on that informs the norms by which people behave in the workplace and acts as a guide for how you go about executing on your job. And when you arrive at a really early stage startup, like SKU Chain was, um, still is in many ways, and particularly when you're working on a bleeding edge technology, all that structure goes out the door. And the challenge then is to look to form that structure and to build a solid foundation for the company, but at the same time to be open to this really fast, iterative culture that we have in Silicon Valley and making sure that when you are in a position, uh, and frankly, when you have the obligation to continue innovating, that you do just that, that you focus on the innovation piece and at the same time look to build something for the future. What do you find exciting about that? What I find exciting about it is that it requires you to respect and to learn from what has come before, but it also requires you to flout all of that. Uh, so what I mean by that is, for example, I mean, there have been reams and reams 
of content written about how to grow your startup, how to become a Facebook or Google or or any of the other tech giants. Yes, exactly. So there's a lot of advice out there, a lot of um, business school use cases. There's a lot about product development, about how to run engineering teams, about how to get from zero customers to one customer. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there if you want to read about how to grow a startup. And the thing about Silicon Valley is there is now history on how to grow startups. uh, And there are authorities in this area who have done it before and who very generously offer advice on how to do it going forward. But the truth of the matter is that every startup is new, every technology and every industry that has grown in this area is also a new challenge. And there's so much that you have to bring to the job. And it's on you. When you are in an early stage startup in an executive position, you can't really look to your peers and definitely not to people who uh, report to you and say, oh, I'm going to rely on you uh, to do this particular piece, uh, or I need to look for an answer from you. After you take in all of their input, it's really up to you to come up with an answer. And there's very little external affirmation at the time that your answer is correct. Um, But hopefully your experience, your instinct, and of course, the insights from your team uh, and from your community in this industry will help you arrive at a good answer. But you don't know. And the... Actually, I want to unpack that a little bit because even the law can be sometimes future looking. A lot of it is actually based on past precedent. Yes. And how have you seen your mindset shift from relying a lot on past precedent to actually potentially having no past precedent in a field that is so new, especially the application of blockchain to supply chains. It's it's very recent. It There are not many test cases or use examples. When you think about where we're even at in the adoption of blockchain, we're right in between awareness and experimentation. And there really haven't been that many uh, solidified examples. So how does your, your mindset shifted over time from, from kind of these two diametrically opposite ways of looking at problems? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I would say that uh, my legal background and particularly practicing law with a lot of the large corporates who have become customers is that you sort of know what the boundaries are. Uh, So you know what past precedent is, you know what is considered best practices in terms of supply chain operations, business culture, etc. And all of that is informative for the job. Having said that, it is our job as a startup to push those boundaries and to push for that new innovation. And the vast majority of my role has been spent sort of um, reconciling the gap between the two. So just to give you an example, in supply chain, I would say that all the operations professionals that I've dealt with, everyone who does finance or procurement in supply chain as well, are intensely practical and sharp. 
And so they know their job. They know what they're doing. They know how supply chains have been run. They know generally what works. And what we are telling them is the problems that you currently have in your supply chain or that you've been trying to solve for a long time, blockchain can really help with that. But let me, A, put it in terms that will help you better understand how this technology can offer value. Um, But also, why don't we enter into a conversation as to what sort of value can blockchain actually bring and what is just sort of a nice to have because this is a cutting edge technology and yes, you would have you know a lot of the benefits of digitization and the secure connection that blockchain offers. But let's sort of negotiate the difference between where you are, where you've been and where you'd like to go. So in that sense, I would say, yes, I am um, now in a diametrically opposite job from what I had um, (laughs) a few years ago as a lawyer and frankly, a globality as well. But it's because I have seen that perspective and I understand where a large supply chain is coming from that I'm able to sort of feel out the market, if you will, for where there is appetite for innovation and where it can actually truly benefit uh, supply chains going forward. And actually, just for some listeners that aren't as familiar with SKU chain and to put it into context, can you tell us a little bit more about the business thesis and value that SKU chain aims to offer? Absolutely. Uh, so we are a blockchain startup. We focus specifically on supply chain management, and we've built a platform that provides end-to-end management of supply chain, whether that includes tracking and tracing goods as they move through a supply chain to smart contracts where you can digitize supply chain transactions and place those on the blockchain for automated execution or supply chain finance, collaborative planning, forecasting, et cetera. And these are all great use cases for blockchain and supply chain, but the overall value proposition is that blockchain brings about collaborative commerce. And this is a term that did not originate with blockchain, but blockchain makes it real. And it's the ability of supply chain partners in an ecosystem to collaborate with one another seamlessly while preserving the desired level of data privacy. So that's what we do. Really interesting and very well explained. I think there's been many times where people have been asked, especially in the crypto or blockchain space, about what they do or the basic principles of the industry, and it's difficult to explain concisely. So I very much appreciate that. And actually, leading into that as well, Do you think that the applications of blockchain are more sustainable than the original applications to cryptocurrency? And I'll let you take that in whatever meaning that you'd like. Sure. So I do think that there is real practical value, even in supply chain, for cryptocurrency. For example, we have a product called PopCodes. PopCodes stands for Proof of Provenance Codes. And these are digital identifiers on the blockchain. They correspond to physical goods in the real world. So they're a way to track um, each of these goods as they move through a supply chain, as well as as they transform in a production process. Now, uh, tracking the goods is one thing, but being able to 
leverage that into some sort of financial gain is, I think, the goal that most supply chains want to work towards. And that's where the concept of credits, points, uh, and cryptocurrency can really um, be helpful. Mm. Having said that, most supply chains are not in a position to implement some sort of system like that anytime soon. So working with current supply chain operations in the immediate needs of these supply chains, that's where blockchain really provides value. So pure blockchain technology outside of cryptocurrency. I think that with the ICO craze uh, in the last couple of years, you saw a lot of coins being created uh, that did not have a lot of business value, sorry to say. Um, but, you know, they could have had business value in the sense that they allowed you to diversify your portfolios. But in terms of whether it was going to be used in a real world setting, that, well, we've seen evidence that that is not going to be the case. Having said that, I think Bitcoin is definitely here to stay. Um, Ethereum has opened up a new world of smart contracts. A lot of blockchain networks, uh, particularly in Europe, are based off of the Ethereum protocol. Uh, And the innovation that's come out of that has been immensely helpful for many other blockchain protocols. Uh, As we start to move into sort of this new phase of blockchains that are much more scalable with much higher throughput rate, you'll see a lot more adoption of cryptocurrencies. But having said that, I think the industry needs to be careful to not get too far ahead of itself. If you start to think about a cryptocurrency that goes beyond tracking credits or tracking points or serving as, you know, a marker of value, and you're thinking of trading this, for example, or floating it, somehow inflating its value beyond what it actually provides in the real world setting, that's when you get exactly what you got the last two years, which is this giant bubble that gets burst in a pretty tragic way and um, sort of casts a pall on the industry. And that's that's not welcome at, um, at any point. But I think cryptocurrency in a real world setting is maybe a few years out, but blockchain as a pure technology is providing value now. I think what you're bringing up is that cryptocurrency is a part of the basis of the applications to supply chain and therefore it's necessary, but it still has not made itself a necessarily integrated fully into the practical sense of what it aims to do. And we will see in the future if that actually will take root if it becomes as well socialized as many pro-cryptocurrency people would like to see it be. What I'm trying to understand as well is that what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you're knocking your head against in trying to create successful applications with the the companies and the clients that you work with? That's a great question. And uh, in terms of whether cryptocurrency is necessary for a blockchain application, the answer is not necessarily. And most of the time, um, when you see pure blockchain applications, there isn't any sort of cryptocurrency in sight. It can certainly enhance a blockchain application. But is it necessary in order to mm. realize value? Um, 
No. Uh, there are a lot of blockchain applications that are in a live setting right now and offering value to their customers. But it will be a while before, let's say, Siemens or GE or Boeing have their own coin uh, for use in their supply chain ecosystems. Uh, but to answer the question of what is it that I focus on right now, what are the challenges that are first and foremost in my mind? So for this right. industry, um, I think that uh, you know you saw a lot of hype in blockchain over the last, I would say, five years. And it's a young technology. And after about five years, all the customers, rightly so, are asking, okay, so which blockchain applications have been deployed in a live setting? Can you point to a use case where there was significant ROI? In other words, please convince me that we should continue to pursue adoption of this technology. And I think that the challenge is to constantly remind people of the value of this application. What are the true use cases for it? And what does the adoption cycle look like? What are the challenges of adopting this technology? How much time is it going to take to bring your ecosystem on board, et cetera, et cetera. So there remains an education challenge when it comes to blockchain. Uh, the other challenge that I think about quite a lot is with the newness of this technology, a lot of companies were hesitant to make their pilots or their POCs too all-encompassing. So in other words, let's do something small and targeted, uh, which is the right approach, and let's understand what value the blockchain brings. Now, after that pilot or POC is completed, the next step is to move that product into a live setting. So you want to actually use it in production, which is great. However, if you did a blockchain POC or pilot on your own, or maybe with you know a fake supplier or a fake customer or you know fake members of the blockchain network, just so you could understand how this technology works and understand hypothetically if you had other people participating in this blockchain ecosystem, you could start to realize value. That is great for learning. However, when it comes time to adopt, it is a real drawback because mm. you are left with a product that works for you. But you have to convince other people to go along in this ecosystem. In supply chain, you have to convince other suppliers, uh, other customers, perhaps your financial institutions, your banks who help finance your supply chain, the logistics carriers who transport your goods, the ports uh, who process your uh, shipments, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many ecosystem players to bring into this network. And still, the correct approach is to start small. So bring along a supplier or a, a customer who is particularly game for innovation or who is particularly important to you um, as a business partner and um, begin to socialize the blockchain application, constantly think about what sort of value is this application offering them, uh, and then go ahead and execute on that. So I think the emphasis on bringing together uh, a blockchain ecosystem early 
thinking about governance issues around this blockchain ecosystem early are challenges that I always keep top of mind as I'm working with customers and as we're continuing to expand our footprint. Mm, And it's almost about this initial socialization in order to get people on board and get it on board across the entire supply chain in order for the solutions to be effective. So that seems like a very daunting challenge in the field of work that you have. Now, do you work with any clients in China or I'm assuming just because China is such a huge manufacturing and and business hub? Mm -hmm. Are there any unique challenges that you face with Chinese clients or partners or actors along the supply chain? So China has been a challenge and I, I yes. (laughs) And let's dig into that. Right. And I say that um, a little ruefully because in every job that I've had before, every job, um, whether it be law or writing, journalism, uh, globality, it has always involved China. China has been front and center. And when I arrived at SKU Chain, um, so I joined a couple years ago when the company was already a couple years old and had made great forays into China. We had spoken with some of the largest manufacturers and supply chain operators in China, and there were a lot of promising opportunities. But I think, and I talk a little bit about this in recent pieces, that the technology environment in China is a challenge for foreign companies. It's a challenge for domestic companies as well. Uh, But for foreign companies who are hoping to break into the market on top of the uh, regulatory challenges you have, the business culture considerations, now you have this mindset within the Chinese market that any sort of technology that's going to be deployed at scale in the China market has to be in some way homegrown. So with many of our other international partners, they have certainly learned from us and we've learned from them. And our collaboration is based on the fact that we have this core technology, this core IP. Uh, We take it to them and they help us to enhance it among their customer distribution channels, for example, or they help us to localize this product, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of how we run the partnership, it looks very different from how a blockchain partnership would run in China. So what we discovered, frankly, was that A lot of Chinese companies were very eager to use blockchain technology in their supply chains. However, the implicit desire was to do it themselves. So after Mm -hmm. learning, they would find a way to do it themselves. So unfortunately, we have been able to work with Chinese companies primarily as members of supply chains for customers in other countries. So if there is a Japanese company that works with a large electronics contract manufacturer in China, for example, then then we work with that company through that channel. Uh, So we've been entering China alongside another partner. And I think as you get into technologies that are more and more interesting for the Chinese market. So blockchain is one of those. AI is definitely one of those. Robotics. It is important to understand what is the value that you offer and who are the partners that you can bring along that can mitigate against the risk 
that you might think you will be contributing to the market in this way, but somebody will learn from it and do it themselves. And that's not fully a surprise to me. I think that you're hitting upon something that a lot of China's tech success is still really only seen within China and not seen from the outside. I mean, I was startled. You you published a piece recently in the Democracy Journal, and there's this big quoted text that says, while it's true that China dominates the global market and technology exports, only three of the world's top 20 technology companies are Chinese. And I guess what I'm getting at here is that where do you see growth in tech in China? And do you think that there are some major stopping points by the the nature of how the Chinese do business, whether that be the difficulty to pursue partnerships, whether that be cyber relationships with different countries and companies, or the stringent nature in which they they view their laws and regulations around tech. So wondering what your perspective is on you know, maybe why we haven't seen as much growth in some ways in China. Yeah, so the technology industry in China is massive, despite the fact that they only, I, I say only facetiously, it's wonderful to have three <sighs> companies in the in the top 10 or top 20 uh, technology companies in the world. Um, so that's a wonderful stat to have. And China is the largest exporter of technology, despite the fact that they they may not have the household names like an Apple um, or a Google, uh, but they certainly have incredibly valuable technology. I think the challenge that uh, Chinese companies have, and this is true in many industries, not just technology, is China has a branding problem. And with a branding problem comes a distribution problem. So what mm. Chinese companies are finding is, first of all, when you start off as a Chinese company, you look at the China market, it is vast. So conquering the China market, just winning at home is already a huge goal. So most companies uh, understandably want to focus on that first. So first and foremost, the focus is on the Chinese domestic market. Uh, if you succeed there, then you definitely want to go overseas. And I think what uh, Chinese companies are finding is that in the same way, it is essential for foreign companies to have good partners within China. It is essential for Chinese companies to have good partners overseas when they're expanding. And that means having relationships overseas. It also means investing resources in uh, Chinese staff who can work overseas as well as local staff. And I think that cultural interchange can be a challenge. The other major issue is in terms of distribution channels. I think that China has yet to figure out how to make something like a Taobao a household name, how to get uh, distribution partners who will help you make Taobao a household name. And I think the temptation there when you run into friction overseas is to find niches where the Chinese product would do quite well. And there are many of those niches. In fact, they're so numerous that I hesitate to call them niches because they're incredibly valuable pockets of business. 
But having said that, I think that what stops Chinese companies from becoming these mega corporations that are household names, um, that produce products that are recognizable the world over, is really a branding issue. And that stems also from the, the trouble with finding valuable distribution channels and being able to work with overseas partners. So when China is accused, not just by the U.S., but by European companies, for example, of uh, stealing intellectual property for commercial gain, that really hurts what is keeping them from, from growing as these major international organizations. I think the perception that Chinese companies, even if they provide really valuable products, have this you know sort of iffiness about them that really prevents them from growing their technology market overseas. I had not thought about this link between the branding of Chinese tech companies with cyber relations. And so I actually want to understand a little bit more in your perspective about the path forward. Let's just focus on the U.S. and China context, the path forward for the U.S. and China in terms of how they're going to navigate this tense cyber relationship that they have right now, given the the way that they're protecting their IP or accusing each other of uh, IP theft. Yeah, so uh, I would say that the accusations on both sides have to do with cyber relations, but the nature of the accusations are very different. So the Chinese uh, accuse the U.S. of undertaking pretty significant operations to conduct cyber espionage within China. And the U.S. has pretty much admitted that this is true. They do conduct cyber espionage within China. But the U.S. has always alleged that this sort of cyber activity is legitimate. All countries spy on one another is basically the U.S. argument. And what the U.S. accuses China of doing is stealing intellectual property as their cyber activity. And that is not legitimate because it's theft of proprietary technology. And so China has denied this. There's overwhelming evidence that it happens. Not only does it happen, but of all the uh, countries that originate uh, these sorts of cyber attacks on U.S. companies, China is number one in instances and volume as well as impact. Mm. So in terms of a way forward, I think there needs to be a constant vigilance on the part of U.S. companies, um, which definitely exists. U.S. companies are aware uh, when somebody is uh, stealing um, or potentially compromising the security of their technology. And the U.S. government also has to be constantly vigilant about this issue. I think that when President Obama signed the agreement with China uh, to um, refrain from conducting any sort of cyber activity that would involve theft of commercial secrets, that was a positive step. And uh, we've seen that that had a deterrent effect on uh, Chinese um, cyber activity vis-a-vis U.S. companies for a period of time. But 
after a while, uh, that vigilance let up. And as a result, we're back to where we are now. Now, granted, in the meantime, there had been a lot of cases that the U.S. Department of Justice had been putting together. And these prosecutions take time to build. And we've been seeing the fruits of that labor over the course of late 2018. But this is really what's required for going forward is a constant attention by the U.S. government on this issue, perhaps improving the technology that we use to detect these issues, uh, encouraging companies to undertake security measures uh, so that these attacks are not successful. And at the same time... I was just going to say one quick thing. I think you brought up a really good point, too, on this detection issue is, you know, it's hard to detect when there's a poor use um, or use f- towards cyber threat when there's this guise of a significant legitimate purpose. So you brought up these examples of Huawei or ZTE, and mm-hmm. there was almost this guise where it's very difficult to detect. And so being able to develop more sound systems and methods to be able to do so is a huge hinge on that that path forward. Yes, absolutely. And there's no such thing as a hack-proof system other than the blockchain, but the blockchain does have other drawbacks. It cannot be used for absolutely every single digital or technical function. What is actually an application where blockchain is not the best way forward? I think think that's actually a really interesting question as someone who is, of course, pro this method, this means. Yeah. I'll give you an example from supply chain, uh, since that's sort of the application that I know best. But for a long time, there was a feeling that in order for tracking technology on the blockchain to be successful, it would have to integrate with IoT technology. And this is true to a certain extent. This is absolutely true. However, um, I think what proponents of this alliance underestimated was how many IoT signals come from IoT devices And when we compare that against the throughput rate for most blockchain networks, even permissioned networks, so permissionless blockchain networks are public networks like Bitcoin or Ethereum. These are cryptocurrencies, and they base their validation process on proof of work, which is a computation-heavy process. Uh, versus private blockchains where the validation process is based on the fact that this is a permissioned network, uh, that there are uh, ways to validate transactions without having to go through an algorithm-based proof-of-work or proof-of-stake process. Regardless, uh, the throughput rate for both of these is not high enough to be able to handle the millions of signals that come from IoT devices. So if you're looking to use blockchain to track something uh, and you're looking to use an IoT device either for ease uh, or for effectiveness of tracking, then you have to be more judicious uh, in terms of what signals you track. On the flip side, you could do without blockchain altogether. It's possible to use a traditional database, uh, central database system to track these IoT signals. And for some supply chains, that is the conclusion that they've come to. There are other cases in which sharing information 
is not perfect uh, within a supply chain context. And so the uh, supply chain partners can always get the information faster. They can potentially get the information in real time. They can make sure through the blockchain that it is secure and that the data has been authenticated. But it's not as though people did not communicate within supply chains before. They do share information with one another. And from the perspective of a supply chain operations professional, it'd be nice to get the data um, within a few um, seconds as opposed to uh, within an hour or a day. But is it going to make a huge difference? Maybe not. And so in that case, blockchain is sort of a nice to have, but is it a compelling use case for adoption of the technology at this early stage? Uh, probably not. So we definitely see limitations of this technology. It's not, it is currently not the most efficient technology out there for processing digital transactions, but it is the most secure. Fascinating. And thanks for giving that that flip side to that. I also derailed this this conversation about the path forward. And I think we talked about the U.S. side, but I think you were also going to dive a little bit more into potentially China's way towards the path forward for cyber relations. Yeah. So um, in terms of what private companies can do, it is implementing that security technology. In terms of what the government can do for policy, I think that first and foremost, the U.S. government has to focus on cybersecurity as a huge national security issue. And we have seen many congressional studies that reach this conclusion. We've seen agencies reach this conclusion. But in terms of determining who has the authority to oversee cybersecurity operations, I think that's always been up in the air. I think the Obama administration came pretty close to having a formal operation dedicated to cybersecurity. The Trump administration has all but dismantled that. I think going forward, in order to seriously address this concern, there needs to be a formal administrative body that focuses on this particular issue and that has cross-organizational authority. So that sounds like a very boring policy answer (laughs) to what can be a pretty dramatic threat. But in terms of how exactly do we tackle something as complex as cybersecurity, and that takes a consensus of so many different stakeholders, I think that is a good first step. And, you know, while I always say that it's good to be proactive, it's good to be bold in taking action against these sorts of threats, at the same time, you have to be methodical because it is true that there is a lot of salutary technological activity that looks like a cyber attack when it's not. So that's not an altogether black and white satisfying answer. Um, It requires a lot of work. But I think that at some point, uh, we have to come together and decide that this is work that is worth investing in, and go ahead and, and execute on it going forward. Yeah, and it's work that is affecting both businesses and governments and individual actors on both sides. I think it's something that's going to be a part of conversations moving forward and has been a part of many conversations in the past. So really dedicating the time and the the article space to 
think about these issues, I think is something that's really important. I mean, though, Rebecca, you write about so many different things. I There's a huge gamut of different news outlets that you're writing for, topics that you're writing for, and I think this one underlying theme is China. And I was just wondering if there's any other pieces or stories that you've written recently that you care to touch upon or why you decide to to pick the topics that you pick. I will always be most passionate about international trade and the global economic system. I think for anybody who has been studying China for a long time, um, it's not hard to understand just how important this topic is and how central it is uh, for development of U.S.-China relations, for development of China as a country. Um, But now, uh, with the significance of the U.S.-China economic relationship, uh, how important this is for the global economy as a whole. And I think my recent articles before I you know, started to focus really on intellectual property have been to do uh, with the international economic system and how China is using economic statecraft uh, and feeling out how things such as the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank or One Belt, One Road can be used as investment vehicles, um, but also to increase its soft power and its influence throughout the world. And what's fascinating to me, having been involved in some of these transactions, is what Chinese uh, operators will tell me is a lot of the challenges that other people had complained about when they first started doing business in China, they now have the same complaints doing business overseas. And so they're feeling their way as a country whose economy uh, and whose understanding of international business is maturing second by second. And it's fascinating to see a country that is sort of in both worlds right now, in many ways, still deciding on the long-term trajectory of its economy, but at the same time, starting to use its economic influence throughout the world and in doing so, to have a significant impact on the structure of foreign domestic economies as well as the global economy. Um, So this aspect of China has always fascinated me, continues to fascinate me, and um, it's it's definitely something that I continue to to follow and want to write about. Mm. I mean, I have a quote from you here from a foreign affairs article where you say the AIIB represents a, quote, potential vanguard for an alternative world order. I think that captures some of this idea that there's a lot of potential for China to act on the international stage and they're stepping up through many different multinational organizations. I was just wondering if you wanted to to comment on that a little bit more, weaving into this overall thesis that you have on uh, what you write about. Sure. Uh, so I think that, you know, when I said that the AIAB could usher in a new world order, uh, what I meant by that was, I think for for most uh, people who've been looking at China for a while, the reason why it continues to hold fascination is, I mean, first of all, it's just um, inherently a very fascinating topic. It's incredibly complex, uh, incredibly dynamic. But also there was this um, suspicion that this authoritarian system could work out. 
at this scale. And for a post-World War II order where the prevailing wisdom is that some sort of liberal democratic society is the most stable um, in and of itself as well as as a member of an international community, you know, that orthodoxy was starting to be challenged by China. And as China began to grow its influence, it began to uh, legitimate its governance model as well. And I think for the AIB, that was a significant step forward in legitimizing how China has developed as a country, its current governing system, as well as how it chooses to interact with other countries and wield its political and economic influence uh, in order to assert certain outcomes. Now, in terms of how multinationals fit into this, I think every multinational would like to have a vibrant presence within the China market. And I think that every multinational thinks about the risks as well of entering into the China market. And I think in many Mm. ways, um, multinationals have been the conduits, if you will, between uh, the US, Western Europe, and China. Agreed. And yeah, many of the uh, diplomatic... um, or international economic situations that we've seen have been significantly influenced by the presence of multinationals in both countries, uh, as well as the opinions of multinationals. And in many ways, China's path to acceptance on a global stage goes through Western multinationals. And in many ways, the path for foreign multinationals to gain acceptance within China goes through these Chinese partners. And so we see the corporate world acting as this facilitator between the two different economic systems, the two different governance philosophies, and really the the two different worlds. And we'll continue to see that going forward. Now, one would think that because it is a facilitator, uh, that the corporate world is serving a really important function, um, and it is. But with that comes a certain ethos. And this may be a discussion for another time. We could have many, (laughs) many other conversations about this. But I know for a fact, and this has been discussed and and explained and expounded upon in many, many reams of literature that having such a heavy corporate influence on the relationship between the Western world and China is a salutary thing in the short term, but what sort of world are we creating in the long term? And I think you're right. There are so many different directions that you and I could talk in terms of content. I, Your breadth of expertise, I could be asking you questions for the next few hours and have you speak on a myriad of different topics. But I actually want to ask you, as a journalist and writer yourself, you don't get interviewed very often, and I wanted to know why that was. Maybe I'm also not doing my research well, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but you often write about content. You often don't speak about yourself, so I find this a very exciting opportunity to to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, I have always tried to keep the spotlight away from me. And the reason for that is 
I've always worked for an organization, even as a freelance writer or a journalist. I am attached to an institution, um, whichever institution published my work. And I always consider myself to be a representative of that institution first and foremost. And frankly, I have done many things, and I hope this doesn't come across as insincere, but I really don't think of myself as a terribly fascinating or interesting person. I don't have any Kardashian-like stories to tell. Um, (laughs) I would say that's very humble of you. I have a few personal questions or personal slash professional questions that have come up over the course of this interview. I think in the very beginning, when you were talking about how you went from one step to the next. It was a lot that you just reached out to someone. You reached out to the CEO. You reached out to someone that you knew at the company because you thought it was interesting. And I think that really conveys a sense of courage and curiosity, which is really, really inspiring. And maybe you don't think of it that way yourself, but what do you think gets you to take that step to really step outside and say, hey, I'm interested in this because, and sometimes you weren't even looking for a job, as you mentioned, but what gives you that courage to to step out? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, that's a very, very kind thing for you to say, but literally I just sent an email. <laughs> um, I think it has um, never really occurred to me in a negative way how daunting something is. I can realize intellectually how difficult a task is, but whether there's some sort of emotional reaction that comes with that and holds me back, that is something that for one reason or another, I have not really experienced. And I think in the situations that you just cited where I just decided to you know, reach out to the uh, CEO at Globality, or I decided to reach out to the CEO here at SKU Chain. At the end of the day, I think that people always have a fighting chance of talking to people with whom they share a passion. And I think for the most part that we're always looking for other people who share that passion. Uh, and who are interested in potentially collaborating or opening up a conversation. And I also keep in mind that, you know, if there's anything that my career has taught me, it is that people are people. And it doesn't matter if you are someone who, you know, made billions in your 30s or your 80s, or somebody who has never been outside of a private institution, so on and so forth. I think that there are many things that you can think of uh, in terms of potential barriers for reaching out to somebody and connecting with them. But at the end of the day, people are people. And I think keeping in mind that offering some sort of human connection is something of value is important to keep in mind when you're thinking about reaching out and potentially starting something new. And it's also good to comfort yourself that the worst that can happen is they don't respond, which is not all that bad of an outcome. So definitely, if you are curious about something, if you think something might interest you, uh, think about how to connect with someone who can work with you to make that happen. 
and the rest just sort of flows from there. It's true. People are people no matter what what level, what background, what context they come from. I think being reminded of that that level of humanity is really important. Um, Absolutely. That's so obvious, but people just sometimes don't think about. Um, again, something that might be so obvious and you might not even think about is – you know, you're a woman, you're in a tech role. I feel like you might get asked this all the time, or maybe you don't ever get asked it. But do you have any thoughts about women in tech? And have you ever been conscious of that in the different roles that you've had over the course of your career? Or is it something that you don't think about? And if so, why is that? I think any woman in technology who tells you that they don't think about women in tech is lying. And I've it been is... told that. So that's <laughs> that's why there was a big disclaimer up front. <laughs> no, the issue stares you in the face every day. It doesn't matter if you work at a large organization where you are likely to have many female colleagues. Uh, or if you work in a smaller organization where the stats show it's um, less likely for you to have many female colleagues. In fact, there are many cases in which there are maybe only one or two women uh, within a company. And so being in this industry, you have to think about women in tech constantly. And in terms of how to navigate that, again, there are lots of articles written, wonderful, thoughtful, empathetic articles written about how to navigate tech, how to navigate a male-dominated environment as a woman. I think that it's all true. So definitely be aware of your environment, be aware of how you can contribute at the same time if you are tempted or you feel that you are required to be quote unquote more masculine, uh, it's important to remember who you are. And I think that really the most important quality to have or the most important skill to build upon as a woman in this industry is to constantly be aware of making your own way. And whether that is in a room full of men or in a room full of women, uh, in a room full of women who uh, would prefer that they succeed and that you don't, or in a room full of men who are allies to women, doesn't matter what the context is. I think it's important to be aware of what exactly you're offering and how to make your way in this world. And it's not easy. Uh, there have definitely been many cases where I thought to myself that would not have happened if I were a man or that wouldn't have happened, frankly, if I were older. Um, and it's important to keep those instances in mind. But I can also see that if you allow that negativity to sort of overwhelm uh, your thinking in a job, then it becomes very hard to move forward. And there are some cases in which um, being a woman is so difficult in a context that you're fully justified in leaving. But I think in order to have a long-term career in this industry or any industry, uh, it's important for a woman to always be aware of how she is going to make her way in this industry as well as in the world. And I think that sort of inner awareness, inner self 
consciousness, if you will, uh, is particularly important. And it's something that other people, perhaps men, don't necessarily have to think about. They don't have to be so introspective about this particular question because so much of the advancement and the path is easier. I would also assume that earlier on in your career, you might have been less aware. Was there a way that you developed this awareness over time? Is it something that just became more more present to you or you cataloged different experiences and learned from those experiences over time? Absolutely. So there have definitely been concrete pieces of advice that I've been given by female mentors or by male mentors who are allies to women. And I've carried those forward. So for example, when you are in a room to feel free to speak up, there is no such thing as a dumb question. That's one small concrete piece of advice that is incredibly valuable and certainly has been valuable for me personally. I think also that as you progress in your career, because there are fewer female role models in senior positions, it is more incumbent upon the woman to figure out how exactly you're going to go about this job. And as a more junior person, there's a lot more precedent for, you know, how exactly you conduct yourself, how you move your career forward, and you likely have more of a support network. But as you get more and more senior, the rules, if you will, or the code of conduct or the models by which you can pattern your career or your behavior, those become few and far between. And so it's really up to you to figure out a lot of this. Almost like your mindset, your career as well. It's less focused on on precedent and more having to make things up and paving paving the way, both in terms of the work that you're doing and, and the role that you're in, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. I am, again, very, very fortunate to have been able to get to where I am today to be able to enjoy this work and to be able to contribute in the way that I have. But I'm very aware that there is an obligation to pay it forward, not just for other women, but I think for other men as well. I think Mm -hmm. equally men and women have asked me, you know, how is it that I can do X, Y, and Z um, in addition to my day job? Or how can I contribute more at my day job given that I have these other skills that may not fit neatly within the role that I have within the company? And so I think for most organizations, I think a lot of people will agree with me that if you encourage an employee to bring their whole selves to work, uh, you really get much better outcomes. I think everybody is happier on all sides. And obviously, you are able to produce a lot more uh, if you encourage people to take their passions and move them in a productive direction. Yeah, I mean, you just spontaneously answered my favorite question that I ask of every guest on this show, which is, what's one piece of advice that you've been given that you find yourself giving others? And I think you sum that up with a few few really great examples. I think, you know, we've, we've been talking for a while, and I only have one one more question for you is – Looking back in the past three years, what have you seen as your biggest professional growth? And what do you think, looking forward, you're excited about honing in on or growing? So uh, what I will say about 
Skew Chain. So I've been at Skew Chain for a couple of years now, and I was at Globality for about a year and a half before that. So the time that we're covering is mostly Skew Chain and a little bit of Globality. I would say that the most important thing that I have learned is to be adaptable and to be aware of the things that are core to your inner compass and also to your business practices and you know the culture that you hope to grow at a company, the direction in which you hope to grow the company's business, figure out what is core. And then for other things that happen, whether it be discarding a product on your way to discovering product market fit or looking at a few valued employees find uh, more satisfying work elsewhere and then figuring out what to do with your culture to make sure that that doesn't happen. These are all challenges that require being aware and learning from past experiences, but also being adaptable to the situation and being open to new opportunities. I think that a lot of people who have done early stage startups would say the same thing, which is that the most important thing is to be adaptable. And I would say the other major thing that I have learned over the last few years is a lot of people have said to me, oh, your career is a really great example of doing what you love. So there has not been a single thing that I love doing that I haven't pursued over the course of my career. And in that sense, I think it does fit the um, conventional understanding of what it means to do what you love. But I think what the last three years has taught me is the more complex understanding of doing what you love is probably what's going to move your career forward long term. And what I mean by that is there is, you know, sort of the the very pleasant, romantic notion of love is just this, you know, pleasant feeling that starts in your chest and uh, you feel excited and thrilled to be able to do something. You're passionate and enthusiastic. And that's certainly a part of it. But then there's also the part that sticks it out when things are tough. Mm. And I think that doing what you love is really discovering what is it that you will sacrifice for? What is it that requires you to tolerate certain things, but that in the end you are willing to tolerate because you know that you're working towards a bigger picture? Mm. So I would say that in terms of uh, doing what you love, I had one understanding of it in the first part of my career. And over the last three years, I think that understanding has evolved and it has become um, this, I I don't want to attach... a sort of a judgmental um, or a normative descriptor to this, um, but it's certainly a different perspective on what it means to do what you love. What a profound way to close out the episode. Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for your time imparting so much content and also personal knowledge with listeners about your whole host of experiences across many different industries, many different roles, and um, how it's really brought you to where you're at today. I think 
Uh, it's very exciting to see where you'll go and continue to read the articles that you put out there and that this will be one of the many artifacts of, of your professional career. So thank you. Thank you so much. I had a great time chatting and thank you so much for the insightful questions. And I hope um, that this will be the beginning of many conversations. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo, editor and co-producer, as well as Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings can be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.